When you have 50 mutations in a virus, uh, you may get some gain of function, but you could also get some loss of function. And it is possible this particular strain may be less virulent rather than more virulent. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill, Fred, thanks so much for agreeing to do a uh, special edition of our podcast um, and thought it was important because over the long Thanksgiving weekend, uh, new revelations came out about a new variant. And uh, I know it's early, but nonetheless, you guys have been looking at the data. And let me take a step back and just leave it to you two to maybe tell us what we should know, what we should be looking at, and uh, how to begin to think about this uh, new variant. I, I think the biggest thing is, like anything new that has potential to be uh, have bad outcomes, the media jumps on it and focuses on all of the potential bad things. Those are all you can you you can't say that no, there's no possibility that those potential bad things are out there. But the reality is it's probably not as bad as is being portrayed in much of the media. So rather than listen to all these possibilities, we we really should start getting down to some facts about what we do know, not what it could represent in the future. Yeah, I, I agree with Bill. It, it was quite frightening to learn about this variant, uh, but uh, the and the data is very, very preliminary. I think one of the key points is that this particular variant has more uh, mutations in it than anyone described before, approximately 50 mutations and 30 mutations actually in the spike protein itself. Now, a lot of them are clustered near the ACE2 binding site. And the theory is that uh, theoretically, those, mu- those mutations have uh, allowed the, uh, this variant to bind more tightly to ACE2 receptors. There are also some uh, mutations in the furin cleavage site, which is when the, that site is cut, the virus is able to in- be internalized more rapidly. And so the fact that there are furin uh, uh, mutations and ACE2 binding mutations would predict that this virus would enter cells more quickly and more efficiently. And so building on that, there was some initial information out of South Africa that this had almost completely displaced Delta in just a two-week period, uh, being first recognized in uh, South Africa. Now, we know we know since, since this initial statement that it was probably present longer, much longer than that. But since first being recognized somewhere around the, uh, the weekend of the 11th through 14th of November, um, it, it has, by estimate, not by direct measure, but by estimate, become the dominant uh, strain in South Africa. So that implies, if that is true, and that is a question, that implies that this is a more infectious variant than Delta. Yeah, I agree with Bill, but it's a very small area. And what can happen is you can, uh, in a crowded area, the reproductive rate can look very, very high. And therefore, uh, it may appear as though it's spreading very rapidly. 
it's of interest that there are cases in the Netherlands and they there and apparently about the same time it showed up there so that it's possible that its reproductive rate is not as high and only time will tell whether it truly is going to become the dominant. If it is, that is very worrisome. Yeah, there's been one estimate, and the only estimate I've seen of reproductive rate is came out of Israel, and they said that right now they believe it has a reproductive rate of around two. But there's not a, they had freely admitted there's not a whole lot of data to back that up. Uh, that's what I saw too, and that's the, the uh, reproductive rate of the original virus. So that would not be worrisome at all in that Delta is five to eight. So it should remain the dominant. Uh, the other concern is because there are so many mutations, the conformation or the tertiary structure of the virus itself will have changed. And so when it changes and folds in a different way, epitopes that are antibodies that were uh, induced by the vaccines that identify specific amino acid epitopes might be shielded, in other words, covered up. And therefore, the vaccine, I would be predicted that vaccine protection will not be as effective because of this extreme uh, number of, of mutations within the virus. But we're not really going to know whether that that is true. I mean, that is clearly a, a very viable theory, but we're not going to know that's true until we actually start seeing epidemiologic data. Or over the next two weeks, virologists around the world are going to be growing copies of this virus and then subjecting it to sera the blood samples drawn from people with various degrees of immunity from various sources and non-immune people and seeing what the what the uh, the antibody response is to to this new variant. That's going to take about two weeks until we have pretty good data on that. At least that's as a non-virologist, that's what I understand is the is the typical timeline from this point. Yes, that's right. They, they create a pseudovirus and then they look at it is killing uh, with different dilutions of serum from individuals who have been vaccinated with the various vaccines. And then the, the amount you can dilute out that serum and still kill is the neutralizing titer. And it would be very interesting, for example, the Delta, uh, particularly for the J&J &J and the AstraZeneca, uh, particularly J&J, &J, it dropped down to 1 to 30 dilution, which is, is very low, uh, compared to 1 to uh, 1,200 which uh, a lot of the, with the wild type of virus were, were the neutralizing titers. So um, in some cases, if you get down to one to 30, your vaccine is not going to be very effective. But this will have, will have laboratory-based research estimates of what, of effectiveness of vaccines and importantly, natural immunity. Um, that's the other component that we don't, we have no idea right now on. Um, so that'll be, but that, both of those are going to take about two weeks doing it from a clinical epidemiologic point of view, and then from a, um, a bench research laboratorian point of view. Yeah. And then the third concern is, is this particular strain more virulent or does it cause more severe disease? Um, I saw a little report by uh, one uh, practitioner in South Africa taking care of a group of people who reported that none of them uh, lost their taste and sense of taste and smell and suggested that maybe this particular variant might not be as virulent. 
Uh, we really, virulence is very hard to determine and takes a long time. For example, really there, there hasn't been any significant difference detected between the original strain, the alpha, the beta, or the delta variants. Uh, they all seem to be about equally uh, effective at causing disease. But there is a theoretic, the more I've thought about this, when you have 50 mutations in a virus, uh, you may get some gain of function, but you could also get some loss of function. And it is possible this particular strain may be less virulent rather than more virulent. There's really three components uh, for the non-infectious disease, non-virologist. View, my viewpoint is there are three things you need to think about with the virus. One is its virulence. How effectively does it cause disease? its infectivity, how effective can it spread from person to person, and its resistance to, to uh, vaccines. If you're looking at those, if we look at those three things, um, the change, all these mutations on this can affect each one of those three things differently. Because it could, you could have a mutation that causes it to bind more readily, for example. And if it binds more readily, which is what this may have, then it may be able to reproduce itself more easily. But by the same token, you, some of these other mutations may cause it not to create as much inflammation as the original uh, and, and the mutations that we know of um, of concern may not cause as much disease as that. And then the third factor is that the way antibodies and, and then by extension the vaccines work is by actually having geometric almost lock and key type of attachment to each other. And if any of these mutations affect the way that the current vaccines create antibodies that attach in this lock and key function, then you can decrease the effectiveness of the vaccine. There are relations between these three different components but they can also be unrelated because they could be based on different mutations in different parts of the virus. So now I'll turn to the infectious disease person and see if I said that relatively accurately. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree. That was a really nice description, Bill. The three could be, all could be different. And I think uh, we await the studies. The original fear, there was really original great fear. And still there is a little because the one, one, uh, worry for me is if you look at the uh, uh, curve, the infection curve over time, the number of cases over time, you'll see that South Africa was very, very low. And then around November 20th, it shot up and, and the steepness of the curve is like nothing I've ever seen. It was straight up. There was no expense or curve. It just abruptly rose. So that does suggest that the reproductive rate is high, or it is also possible it was in a crowded environment with individuals that were not using masks and were uh, staying in closed environments in large populations. And apparently most of the cases early on have been in young people who tend to be uh, socialized in larger groups and therefore would spread it very, very quickly. So what was interesting about that is where the initial outbreak was noted was at the probably the primary international university in uh, Pretoria, South Africa, the cap one of the capitals of South Africa. Um, the the other thing that is that there was reported coming out of South Africa is even in the areas where they are having this very rapid increase in the case counts. 
um, as Fred has noted, they are not seeing a corresponding increase in the number of hospitalizations. Hospitalizations um, have roughly doubled, but the, the number of physicians in South Africa attribute this to whenever there's a new variant, there is a significant degree of fear. People present earlier for care, plus clinicians not knowing what the potential outcomes are going to be with a new variant tend to have a lower threshold for hospitalizing uh, at-risk people until they know how this variant is going to affect them. The same, the exact same pattern was seen with um, previous variants in South Africa. Uh, one, one thing that we have not talked about, which I think we really need to emphasize, is that in South Africa, the percent vaccination, I think, was about 30 percent, 30 to 40 percent. And it, it just emphasizes how important it is that we get the vaccine to all countries as quickly as possible. If we're only as safe as our weakest link, and right now there are a lot of weak links and it behooves uh, the wealthier countries to provide vaccine for the, the countries that don't have the same resources or we're never, this pandemic is never ending. Yeah, well, actually, Fred, let me, let me adjust downward. It, uh, the vaccination rate in South Africa is actually 25%, at least uh, as of this morning. Uh, and one of the issues that they are facing is um, basically uh, a lack of popular support for the vaccine, people wanting voluntarily to take the vaccine. So the challenge is there may be some supply issues, but there's certainly similar, what I'll refer to as either educational or cultural barriers to um, agreeing to be vaccinated. So that continues uh, to be a problem. And what I'm, what I'm hearing from both of you is that there's a lot yet to be learned there is a lot of data that we don't yet have. Uh, with all the information yet to come, uh, what are you advising uh, people and institutions in terms of reopening, in terms of travel, in terms of uh, the types of gatherings that are often necessary for business, no less the social season that, uh, that we're in the middle of? Well, I've, that was, I've spent the last two days addressing exactly those questions. And the biggest thing I'm saying is I would be very concerned about planning any significant international travel right now. The re it's not so much because of a fear of where we stand with the Omicron variant, but it's a fear of how governments around the world are reacting. Uh, you can easily find stories of many people who, even in one case, people were on a plane to fly home and they, the plane got the word that they were denied landing rights because they were coming out of Southern Africa. So the what could happen, how governments are going to react to this with various types of uh, quarantine, isolation, and bars, bar to entry um, orders would keep me from want to flying at least for the next couple of weeks. That period of time that we said we need to get the epidemiologic and the, um, the bench research on this, I'd be uncomfortable with that. I am not advising significant changes in in policies regarding return to office, um, uh, masking policies, and any of that right 
yet. Um, we can still, I think we still have time. We can watch a little bit what's happening. Um, this is not going to be suddenly it's everywhere in the United States. There will be, you know, it will have some ramp up period. Even the original strain had some ramp up period. Um, and we can, I believe that we can, if we start to see it emerge, we can turn on requirements as needed. Um, but we don't need to jump to those right out, right out of the gate. One, one really important thing is don't loosen your policies right now any further than they are. Uh, you know, I th- sort of think about sports and athletics. We, we, you would train for a sport and you'd get very uh, careful in the way that you did certain techniques. And then if you uh, don't have your coach around, you get sloppy after a while. And then you get into bad habits and then you start to lose uh, your athletic skill. Well, similarly, if we if we drop all masks, drop all all of these different infection control practices, people will stay lax. And then if we need to ramp up, it'll be very hard to do. So do not ease up anything right now. Just give it a pause until we can find out more about this particular variant. Uh, that would be my recommendation. Yeah, Fred, I agree completely. And in fact, that's exactly, I, as, as you know, I do some consulting with uh, sports leagues. And that's exactly what I said. We don't need to reinstate certain testing and um, other procedures, but we don't, this is not the point at which we want to back off on anything. Let's wait and see. Yeah, one other interesting thing that we didn't mention is uh, the, this particular variant has uh, a, a loss of a, of a gene that's in one of the PCR uh, detection uh, kits. And so uh, there are usually, when you use PCR, you, you usually uh, actually try to uh, have three different sets of probes. And they have one to the nuclear capsid and they have one uh, to the spike protein in this one uh, PCR. And that particular sequence is missing in, the, in this variant. And therefore, if you have a positive for the other two signals, and a negative for the spike protein, you uh, actually can uh, make the diagnosis of this variant without having to do full genomic sequencing. This is a big advantage and will allow us to identify uh, the variant more quickly. What is interesting, and this has been highlighted in uh, prior podcasts, the pandemic is not just a biological uh, issue. It's certainly uh, political, um, it's psychological, And um, as you're both uh, alluding to this, uh, governments have taken very swift action to close their borders. And uh, the markets are certainly responding or gyrating, maybe a better term, to whatever the latest news is. And I'm just curious, as some of the leadership out of um, both Moderna and Pfizer have commented, sort of you have your views on uh, what the two most prominent vaccine manufacturers uh, seem to be telling people and the markets about this variant and anything that you I'm not saying that the news is a- accurately covering it but I know that you know you're monitoring what leading medical experts are saying and scientists are saying but how do you interpret um, any of the messages that seem to be coming from the pharmaceutical industry about uh, the variant about the efficacy of current vaccines, about what might be developed down the road, and how people need to think about this. 
Well, I think this is one of the most important features of the mRNA vaccines. And as I understand it, also they share this feature with uh, the Novavax type vaccine in that they can take the the basic uh, platform that they've used to develop the, the the mRNA vaccine on the on the and the the Novavax and just fairly simply uh, take out the current genome and put the new genome in and then send it to manufacturing. There is some testing that needs to be done, but it is nowhere near the extensive testing that was done with the original. So it's a process that that take from a decision to field a new vaccine based on a new variant. The decision take it's about two months until you have a vaccine ready to start going in arms. That's a pretty quick process. So uh, both Pfizer and Moderna, as well as Novavax, has said that they are, they can do that very quickly. They could, they're, they're ready to make a decision. They did the same process with Delta, but then a, a scientific decision was made in conjunction with the both the uh, the manufacturers and the major regulators around the world, that if they were to put out a new Delta-oriented virus uh, vaccine, I'm sorry, that what that would do is stop all vaccines until they had the new one ready, because people would not get the old vaccine if they knew they could get the new one. Yes, and it turned out that if you get a booster, you're quite you're protected uh, from hospitalization and serious disease in most situations uh, with the conventional vaccines. Um, I did hear the uh, today that the uh, head of Moderna felt that uh, that this particular virus would be uh, would escape the vaccines more readily than previous variants. But we have heard that before, and it didn't turn out to happen but but not that the vac not that the virus that was out there the variant that was out there could not escape but that the 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 uh variant did not become widespread and that gets back to those three features virulence um effectiveness or responsivity to vaccine and uh, infectivity and those are those three re closely related but different characteristics exactly and you know there have been now we've discovered there are a fair number of cases in the Netherlands, and yet there don't seem to have been huge outbreaks of this variant yet there. But we have very little data. So we it may not be uh, as dangerous or as widespread as we originally thought. I was never worried about the uh, the uh, the beta variant uh, or the P1 and the Brazilian variant or the Brazilian variant because they did not have a high reproductive rate. I think the key will be the reproductive rate as well as the severity of illness. Those two key are really going to be important. Okay, and Fred, when you refer to severity of illness, um, the bar that I think you're addressing here just to level set this is hospitalization, correct? Hospitalization, yes. Okay. Both, both. I know that um, from our prior podcasts and, and our conversations that data coming out of Israel has been particularly important as a barometer of what may lie ahead and what might be required uh, in response. Is there anything coming out of Israel or any other jurisdiction for that matter that you find to be a sort of a important indicator to keep an eye on? 
Well, that as we said earlier, the, da the data about the reproductive rate of two, that came out of Israel. I, I'm going to be looking for the Israeli data because they have excellent public health and laboratory science systems. And, um, and they traditionally have a significant amount of travel between Israel and South Africa. So it would be very, very reasonable to believe that that if it's widespread in South Africa, it's likely going to be quickly widespread in Israel. So how the how their um, the effect of this variant on Israel goes is going to be very uh, telling for how it goes for the rest of the world. Okay, not just the rate of infection. I assume you're going to be looking closely at uh, the severity and, as Fred was alluding to, uh, the number of cases that result in hospitalizations and to the extent that there are people who have been fully vaccinated, received boosters, how that, com how that data might compare to people who have not been vaccinated. That's exactly right. The, the other thing that's going to be very interesting about this is if we look at, to the extent that we can, we look at the historical pathway that viruses have, have gone. Um, specifically going back to the 1500s in Europe, there was the sweating illness that many, many um, historical virologists, I'm sure there's a name for that, um, believe was probably a coronavirus. And it, it, ended by petering out and that the, the, the disease itself changed to not be severe. It was not this high fever illness that killed people. It became an illness that people got. And then eventually, this has probably become one of the coronaviruses that is the causes of the common cold today. The general pressure of evolution is to push a virus to be, to be more infectious, but but possibly even less virulent because the way you you get the greatest spread, which is what evolution pushes something to do, is by reproducing highly, but not killing your host so that your host can continue to reproduce. Yeah, that's really a nice analogy, Bill. I really like that. And, and it's exactly true. And the hope is, and that's what I'm starting to think now, because it has so many uh, mutations in it, this virus, this virus may be less virulent. And if that's true, uh, that would be a real silver lining to this whole development. I love the um, process that uh, uh, the virus almost has a mind of its own. Uh, it, it wants you to host it, uh, but doesn't want to kill the host. And maybe you can just comment about, you know, just sort of the state of the science now in the ability to isolate the DNA, to identify what's needed to create a new vaccine and the speed of which we seem to be able to create one, whether it gets approved as quickly as another matter, but the speed to market and certainly maybe one of the, the shining lights that does come out of this uh, particular tragedy. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, we've been uh, developing more and more efficient sequencing methodologies for uh, decades and now we can sequence this 32 kilobase uh, virus very, very quickly. So we can pick up all the variations. And then with the mRNA, we can design a message that exactly reflects those variations and get it into, uh, a, put it in a lipid, get it into the somebody's arm very, very rapidly. And, and that's why I think the mRNA vaccine is a major, major step forward and the safety, even though people keep trying to uh, claim that it's causing serious side effects, 
uh, they really haven't shown up. So it's very, very safe. It's very, very rapidly can be altered and varied depending on the conditions and new variants. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's really been a win-win. Bill, your closing thoughts, because I know you're talking to clients. I think people were originally, uh, you, we heard the first things coming out of this, and it scared people. I'm not trying to say that people should not be concerned, but concern doesn't mean that you, that you panic. Concern means that you follow the data, you educate yourself on what's out there, you get good trusted resources that can, that can help interpret what we're seeing and help advise you on, on way forward. Um, right now, we don't have a whole lot, and the more we are learning, it's not looking anywhere near as bad as the first, um, you know, highly charged uh, news articles and and news presentations uh, came out to say. So, t take a deep breath and let's watch what happens. I, I have to tell you that uh, in the I was working in the emergency room yesterday and. Uh, I talked to a lot of the doctors, and they really, really don't want another surge. I'm telling you, everybody is so tired of this disease and the devastating nature of this, this infection. And the problem we have in Florida is our politicians don't have our back at all. So if this does turn out to be a virulent, uh, rapidly spreading virus, uh, I'm telling you, Florida is in big trouble. Uh, again, I can't thank you guys enough for not only sharing your scientific insights, but a, a great deal of common sense and a great deal of calm. Uh, that said, we're going to stay close to this one. Uh, I'll be talking to you guys before the next podcast. And obviously, if something significant happens in the interim, uh, we'll get that out quickly to the audience. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.